Stephen Holden said about your little movie. <laughs> Somewhere around its midpoint, Across the Universe captured my heart, and I realized that falling in love with a movie is like falling in love with another person. Imperfections, however glaring, become endearing quirks once you tumble. <laughs> this surrender is a kind of commitment that Ms. Tamor, a true believer in the magic of art, asks an audience. And it goes on and on and on. Now, some people didn't like it quite that much, no. as you know. Now, is this True. the kind of movie that attracts diverse responses? I think so. Because? I think anything that's really different, that really takes chances, that that breaks the rules, also plays with sacred cows like the, the Beatles, Beatles music, is going to it's going to engender that debate. And I welcome that. Better than bland, better than wow. That was well, nice. But that's also what you most want to do, isn't it? Take yes. chances, go against the grain. This week's When They Was Fab. I'm Ed Chen. And I'm John Stone. Joining us this week, Erica White, co-host of BC The Beatles. We've been trying to have you on for like a long time, and we finally found a, a time and a place when it can happen. I know. I'm so glad I am able to join you, and especially for this. I love this film, so thank you. <laughs> you and John agree. <laughs> right. Ed is going to be the dissenter here. I very much love this film. Not much news. Paul finished his second night in Oakland. He went through SoFi Stadium in Los Angeles, and next week, he's here in Texas, hanging out in Fort Worth. Are you going to be seeing him? I'm not going to be seeing him there. I'm going to be seeing him in Orlando, because that happens to follow on the holiday weekend. Excellent. Exciting. Are you going to get out to New Jersey at the end uh, of the tour, or no plans as of yet? Not New Jersey, unfortunately. Uh, my schedule kind of confines me to the weekend, so I'm looking at either Baltimore or uh, Syracuse. I really would have liked to have gone to uh, Fenway to see him out there. I've been to Fenway, but I haven't seen him there. Oh, I know. That would have been so nice. Again, it falls on the weekends. And some of my podcast friends over at the podcast Blotto Beatles are going in a group too, which would have been a fun uh, oh, yeah, fun thing to do. We got to get both of us on Blotto Beatles, John. Their shtick is uh, you drink and talk about Beatles stuff. Well, wow. Oh, man. I was on Blotto Beatles once. Oh, whoa. I don't remember the end of that. It was something else. (laughs) I'd probably get into a fight with Bob Wooler. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's hope you don't get into a fight with me. (laughs) I did want to say that, you know, I really wanted to take my son to to see Paul because he's definitely a Beatle freak right now. But I'm still putting him through school. So therefore, the money was 
prohibitive. Tight, yep. Mm. No, understood. Hopefully he'll make it back. And what I'm hearing from his people is that he is looking into venues for next year. So we'll see. Wow. I always expect him to come back. I always hope he does. And he always does so far. So He told us he'd be getting back and he's got back. He got back. Our topic this week is one we've been kicking around for, oh, at least a good couple months. The uh, Julie Taymor 2007 film Across the Universe. Hooray! Yes, a fine film. The first time I saw it, I was actually really excited and and really interested to see the film because I remember seeing the trailers in the film. It starts off with the lead character, Jude, singing Girl on the Beach. And it was even then having that trailer come in between action movies and whatever else was going on at the time (laughs) was made your ears prick up. Oh, for sure. Right. And then I remember the cast was on Good Morning America, I believe, and they actually sang a medley from the film live. Joining us now, the lead cast members of a brand new movie called Across the Universe, a love story which takes place during the upheaval of the 60s. It's also a musical set to the music of the Beatles. Opens in select cities today, opens nationwide September 21st. And here with me is Evan Rachel Wood, Jim Sturgis, Dana Fuchs, Martin Luther, and TV Carpio. And you did all your own singing, right? Yes. 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 Live. 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 Hours and hours. Julie wanted the veins bursting on our <laughs> But Missy Girl, you didn't have any singing um, background before going. Was it not a little really. daunting to do Beatles songs, such beloved songs? No, not at all, yes. <laughs> <laughs> These are sacred songs. Yeah. You don't want to mess them up. No pressure. And, and that also got me wanting to go to the theater. And I went to the theater opening weekend, not on opening day, which was, you know, like the Wednesday or something, but opening weekend. Uh, I made sure I got to it. And well, we'll discuss how I felt afterwards when we get there. <laughs> um, gotcha. It should be pointed out that most of the singing in this film was live. So the fact that they did that on Good Morning America is, is cool, but they did a lot of the singing live to the camera. Which was great. And you can tell, you know, there's a, a Absolutely. lot of m- musicals and movie musicals that have that auto-tuned, the syncing is off, all that. This does not have it. It's very natural. It makes a huge difference. Right. And, and when you're watching someone on the screen and they're 20 feet tall, you can tell when their mouth is actually moving to the music. <laughs> you know, yes. There's a certain thing. And you go, wow, that's live. The main performances would have to be live. You know, you have a lot of singing and dancing. The background actors that can't be live singing when they're singing harmony most likely it's a combination they would do it together and there would be a a soundtrack and they would kind of mix it together in post to make the live feeling very on point but at the same time it still sounds professional and it still sounds everything's in the right places if that makes sense and they did it so well there i mean i I don't want to kind of jump around too much but there's a, a song later on that Jude sings and his vocal performance is great and his acting performance is great. You have to realize he is singing this while he's making movements and doing things. It's commendable. It's really good. What's amazing is that Evan Rachel Wood was an actress, but most of the rest of the cast were musicians. Right. Yeah, you can you can tell too. They're they're really wonderful singers. I mean you compare it to something like Glee. <laughs> Did this proceed, Glee? I think it did. Uh, by a number of by years. Two, yeah. By about two years, yeah. I can't say anything bad about Glee, so now you kind of know where my background is. I saw Glee live many times. Big, big fan. <laughs> well, you don't have to like Glee to like this, because what little I've seen of Glee, it, it didn't 
connect with me. So, well, Glee stole the same idea. They actually did a Beatles episode somewhere along the way in like the fourth season or so. They did. Not so great. Definitely doesn't compare to to this movie. But this was definitely one of of many. I think that early to mid 2000s was really a a wonderful time for these kind of of movies and, uh, you know, for the musical to kind of make a revival in the theaters. I would say the first one that I can think of in this kind of time period was probably Moulin Rouge, which to me is almost a sister film to Across the Universe, and then Hedwig and the Angry Inn, Chicago, Jersey Boys, Hairspray. There were just so many right around this time. Right. You also had things like uh, Buddy, the Buddy Holly story, which is a great musical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we named most of the significant ones, but there were a lot of movie musicals going on around, uh, movie and Broadway-type musicals going on, and you know, people were looking for that. I think this one stands out because it's not a movie about the Beatles. It's not two of us, not biographical at all, but they take in the Beatles work to make their art with. Well, I've seen more than one comparison of this film to yesterday in that it's a movie about the Beatles without the Beatles being in it. Hmm. I can see that. I think this one took a very different tactic. I will say that yesterday is not one of my favorite films of all time for sure. (laughs) Um, in, I think in the, in this case, they took their license in a very different way, and they almost went further into the music, whereas there was almost more of a sci-fi plot around yesterday. The thing that I really liked about this one is that the music and the lyric becomes a big part of the dialogue in this movie. Well, there isn't much dialogue. Over the course of a two-hour, 15-minute film, there's less than a half-hour dialogue in the whole thing. But it almost begins perfectly. He sings Girl. The scene actually, chronologically in the film, comes much later, so that you find later that this scene will be going to a flashback. will tell the story moving up to this point. But the opening line, is there anybody going to listen to my story? All about a girl who came to stay. It's perfect to set this up. Well, since you seem to want to be going into this, let's go into the Mm -hmm. film. We can go into some of the background and stuff at the end of our discussion here. So, yeah, it it starts with girl. And I agree with you. You're wondering what's going on with this guy and what is with this love affair that he's clearly telling us about. Right, And it's a wonderful way to introduce the character of Jude. And this actor was just the most wonderful amalgamation of John and Paul. And <laughs> he's just got such a, a perfect look about him, a perfect feel about him. And then just hearkening back again to, you know, Moulin Rouge, it, it starts almost exactly the same, which is kind of funny. Yeah, J- James Sturgis, uh, I don't quite agree with you. I, I like to refer to him as uh, David Essex for the aughts. okay i can see that after this the interesting beginning with girl then you get sadie who we're not going to be seeing until later and she's singing helter skelter it's like this is where things start to go a little bit off for me i'm not sure why it does that for you because basically it it sets up the you know it's newspaper headlines and it's it's the whole 60s thing it's nothing about the characters it's okay, we're going to be telling this story, which, well, frankly, other people have told, and other people have told much better. I mean, we don't know this at this point in time, but 
it's really hard to do a good political 60s story. That's not what this is. There's some in it. I mean, but, but it is a, a story. So, you know, it's not strictly that, and it's not strictly about the chaos of the 60s, although that's what this song... I mean, you know, when you do anything with Helter Skelter, a lot of Beatle fans are going to immediately think Manson and, you know, McCartney's thing about it being the loud, most loud, raucous sort of thing, and, and that's the introduction of this. It's not going to be... Well, here's a story about a girl. The visuals are okay. It's just, okay, we're getting into, I don't get it. Right. (laughs) Well, I think it's a good foreshadowing for what you're going to see. And I think it dovetails nicely into the next scene, which is clearly a couple of years earlier in the 60s in these folks' lives. And so it kind of just gives you a bit of a direction on where you're going to be going, which is not a high school story. It's very different. So right. that kind of gives you a feeling for it. You see the two leads. You see James Sturgis as Jude. And of course, he's from Liverpool. And of course, he works at the docks. Gee, someone had been watching the Free as a Bird video. <laughs> well, I guess that's true. I don't know. I thought that was very clever, actually, in that the character of Jude, they situated him in the world of the Beatles. And right. I think that for us, for those of us watching with deeper knowledge of the Beatles, those are those Easter eggs where you're seeing that, you know, there's this almost Beatles lookalike band playing at the cavern where they're dancing together. I can't believe they spent the money to do that. You know, there's like five minutes of screen time and they actually went to Liverpool and shot all of that. That's Julie Tamar for you. That's part of her magic, the spectacle that she creates. And she'll go as far as she needs to to get it. So Places have definite looks. And so she went to Liverpool and filmed all this and and it made it, gave it the look that we're all kind of familiar with. Yeah, I don't think you could have done this authentically in any way without having actually gone to those places. Right. And one of the things that I loved about this scene is the use of Hold Me Tight as the bridge song, because the scenes in America, rock and roll had become kind of treacly and sweet and poppy. And in the UK, it was much more primal and gritty. And this song bridges both. You could see the high school dance. Which looks very back to the future. <laughs> yes, it does. Well, but it's that's what it was. I mean, you can compare it to another film, but that scene epitomizes the look of teenagers back then. Swing into that, and then you cut to the cavern, and it's completely different. Same song. And it just gives a different vibe. And I thought that was a great use. And the arrangements are changed just ever so slightly between the two. Yes. Mm-hmm. The, the, mm-hmm. the American dance, there are like horns in it. and Whereas in Cavern, it's just the four musicians bashing away. Which is one of the reasons why I just love this movie so much is that they take these songs that we know and we love and have etched into our brains and they do things with them to resituate them in ways that makes you see them differently, makes you think about them a little bit differently than you always have. And this one did it in two different ways juxtaposed against each other, which is just brilliant to me. Right. Exactly. Now then, story-wise, there's a lot of things that I don't get until they actually happen on screen. You know, I saw him. I saw him with his mother, who had raised him alone, and he with the GI photos. But I 
kind of didn't get the idea that he was going to America to go find his father. Yeah, I think they kind of let you wonder what's up with him until he gets to the Princeton campus, really. Then you see him getting on the ship. He leaves. He tells his girlfriend that he's going to write her every day. And he sings All My Loving. It's a good version of All My Loving. It is. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the ones that, you know, that he sings live. And it's a cappella. And it's one of those, he's leaving and the lines are just perfect. Scriptwriter could have written the same lines without music. It's lovely. It's beautiful. Then we cut to Prudence. Prudence is a character whose point I really don't see in this film. I get it. It's diversity. They're trying to introduce the LGBT thing. But what purpose does she have in the movie? The the change of the 60s, I think. The changing of the culture. This is a girl who has an attraction for another girl. And then she has to leave. But I didn't really get that from what she, from her singing I Want to Hold Your Hand, a very interesting version of I Want to Hold Your Hand, a, a very longing Broadway version of I Want to Hold Your Hand, but in a good way. Right. Oh, I got it immediately. The, her intention was. And, you know, as far as Prudence, and I guess I would say the same for Sadie and for JoJo, is that they needed to round out our cast of characters or else it would be very empty when these more ensemble-focused scenes. So, you know, I think that all three of them kind of have more minor storylines to the plot, but I think they all point to the changes of the 60s that tumult younger people might have been going through trying to mature and come into their own. She definitely focuses on the girl. For the first time I saw it, I was surprised because you're thinking, you know, I want to hold your hand and you have an expectation. But when she focuses on the girl, I kind of went, oh, okay. And then as she's walking the football players are falling around her in slow motion. All this testosterone (laughs) just (laughs) flying around her and she's completely oblivious walking Mm -hmm. forward. So, you know, it it came off real definitive for me. Okay. It may have just been too subtle. I mean, like you say, (laughs) I just kind of, I just kind of didn't get it. Right. It's like, Oh, she's what, wait, who's she longing for? And, and, you know, I guess it was kind of evident, but well, not really. Well, you get another chance during uh, Dear Prudence, so. <laughs> uh, there are several, actually. There's another one, too. So uh, Jude finds his way to America. He hits the Princeton campus. He thinks his father is a professor. Do they tell us why he thinks that? Because he's from Princeton. He knew that he was at Princeton. Yeah, that's all he had, that he was at Princeton. He thought he was probably some big brainy guy and then, you know, found out that he was working class like him. I think he and Max have a conversation about it towards the very end of the movie. They meet. He learns that his father is actually a janitor on the Princeton campus. It's kind of implied, okay, he met him. There is not much there. But, I mean, it does manage to come back later. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course, it's the catalyst for him to meet Max and start his whole adventure, too. He's wearing the the Lennon Hard Day's Night cap. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And then uh, on the Princeton campus, uh, in in their dorm, there's there's a prominent poster of uh, Brigitte Bardot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, all these little Easter eggs that, that don't really make that much material difference to the plot. But if you know what you're looking at, they really fill out the world. Or listening for, because when they do a little help from my friends, you're hearing the Pepper version, kind of, you know, the kind of bouncy little help from my friends. And then right in the middle, there's that drum beat, and then it becomes Joe Cocker's version. Well, a lot of people wouldn't get that, but it's it's, it's a cool effect. It's really cool. 
Although people might get it since, well, Joe Cocker does show up later in the film. It's possible. Also very cool. <laughs> Max and Jude become friends and apparently pretty fast friends. Uh, what time of year is this supposed to be? This is supposed to be clearly the fall semester. Right. He would have just started in, you know, within, so October. Right. This is October, November, because when Max comes back home, it's Thanksgiving. So he couldn't right. have known June for too much longer, probably early November. Uh, we meet the family, the family who are all named after characters in Beatles songs. The, the mother is named Martha. The uncle was named Teddy, as in okay. Teddy Boy. Nice. A very dysfunctional family, I should say. <laughs> it's a view which surprisingly holds much more today than it might have in 2007. You know, maybe in the 60s it fit just as well, but the divided politics of the older generation and the younger generation very clearly comes through. Yeah, and it's interesting that Lucy tells Jude, I have such a boring, normal family, something like that. (laughs) When I look at that family, I don't see anything close to normal (laughs) or boring. (laughs) Right. One song we didn't mention, which I also like a lot, is uh, the class on the last day of school before Thanksgiving to It Won't Be Long. You see the clock counting down in time to the music, and, and that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to and me, the- that's that's where Julie Taymor and the theatrical background of this thing, really, those little beats that come through are just so fun to me. Yeah. And the use of this song at this point is kind of showing the continuing innocence of the early 60s at that point. Things weren't changing all that much yet. The sister character, Lucy, who's played by Evan Rachel Wood, just as an aside, I didn't realize Evan Rachel Wood was going out slash engaged to Marilyn Manson at that time. Oh, no way. (laughs) It makes Westworld make a lot more sense. (laughs) Wow, big yikes. I did not know that. We, you know, we see them through through the last day before Thanksgiving. They have this Thanksgiving dinner. Jude and Lucy fall in love immediately. Yeah, it's adorable. The bowling sequence is just so much fun. Kind of like one thing we I don't think we mentioned it, and it won't be long, the basketball scene in the school where they're oh, uh-huh. using the sports in time to the choreography. The, the bowling scene was very similar. Yes. Um, with, a, with a little more of the, I don't know, more mature, maybe toward the psychedelic in for the first time in the film. And I've just seen a face. There's lots of neon colors in it. Yeah. It's not, and, it's and not when psychedelic yet, but it's colorful. It's getting there. It's yes. getting there. And him sliding down the bowling alley and you're seeing him, right. you know, you're looking over him. It's just a little bit more of that, you know, more mature. That's one of the things that's really great about this film. It's like, you know, she just inches things up in every scene so that it doesn't become jarring. It's the way things evolved. And she evolves the look of this film as it goes along. I found it just diving into the showy. There was a little bit there in the dancing around in the room to little help. But this takes it all the way. It cranks the knob up to Broadway. Oh, yeah. We're in it now. This is the plot. We've met our folks. You know, we're on our way. And her background is Broadway. (laughs) Well, this is true. The other thing that we learn about uh, Lucy, despite the fact that she is at least having some feelings developed for Jude, well, she has a boyfriend who's coming home from Vietnam. Right. Yeah. And that's also, you know, tied into the it won't be long thing. So after I've just seen a face, we just sort of 
cut abruptly to Detroit. We see the riots, which actually took place in 1967. We see a black child of, what, about seven or eight killed in these riots. And we see the aftermath of that. Right. Yeah, we're certainly time jumping a little bit as far as real life chronology is concerned, but I think they needed to start showing those things to prime us for what this film is really going to be about. We leave the innocence of, of their hometown pretty quickly after this. And the riots at that time were taking place over a period of years. So, you know, the Watts riot was in 65. And so it might be specific to a city, but the, it was going mm-hmm. on and you had to sort of get this in what was going on in the country. This goes back to the newspaper thing. Did they need all of that? I think they could have found another way to launch Jojo on his way to New York City other than having his brother killed in the riots. The version of Let It Be is really good. Paul McCartney has probably dreamed of hearing a version like that, the full-on gospel treatment. Right. Oh, sure. I mean, considering he wrote it with Aretha Franklin in mind. It's very pleading. It can be sung as a gospel anthem, but this version in particular, is it just kind of begs, let it be. Uh, I found it very powerful. What's really effective to me is intercutting the riots and the dead brother to Lucy finding out that her boyfriend had been killed in Vietnam. Although the footage of them coming and knocking on the door and telling the mother and having her breaking down, we've seen all that hundreds, if not thousands of times before. Yeah, that and a couple other things in this film gave me some really strong Tommy vibes. (laughs) I think that thing at the door is right out of Saving Private Ryan. There's two examples. There's hundreds of others that are exactly the same scene. I mean, you need something there. You need some catalyst for Lucy to break out of her very sheltered, white suburban life and want to join her brother in the city. And And you need something to anchor Jojo into this world, too. So I think that does double duty there. Part of the story is that Lucy has to radicalize. And Mm -hmm. it's got to start somewhere. That's where it starts. Well, there's a hint of that there when she's talking to her girlfriends about having children is nothing but hubris and all of that. Yeah. That kind of parallels to me Prudence and her, you know, longing for this girl and that the women here all in different ways, have opinions and thoughts that are really not the norm of the society at the time. Uh, so we see Jojo, who we learn is a guitar player. I guess we don't, we're not told that in the first scene, but we see him arriving in New York City with a guitar. He arrives at the bus station, and here's where we actually get Joe Cocker, and he leads off a version of Come Together. God, right. I love that. Yeah, it's so that's... cool. It was so much fun. I like the first part of it. Again, once it breaks into the dance number, it loses me. <laughs> Pimps and hoes on parade, and then then the Mad Men sequence where the John Ham clones. Although this is years before Mad Men, it is not. It is the year Mad Men came out. So this was like 1960s enthusiasm in the culture. But dancing around and and their suitcases, uh, uh, briefcases. It's like, eh. Well, you know, I think from what you're saying, you kind of are take, going to take a stance. You know how Lennon was. He didn't want you breaking into song in, in the middle of a movie. He wanted there to be a reason to do a song. I would agree with that. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you're not really hot on any of the dance numbers at this point. But that's part of what this sh- movie is going to be about, really. And so I thought that dance number was fine. It's kind of unexpected, a move, and kind of get the point that 
everybody is conforming to, you know, they're all carrying briefcases. They're all wearing the same outfits. They move the same way. Right. Juxtaposed against the, you know, pimps and and the homeless people and the hippies and the people that we're going to start meeting. We're seeing the counterculture directly rub up against modern society. Right. And this scene in particular, you know, there is an idealized memory of the 60s. And this is the darker side, the pimp mm-hmm. and the bums and the drugged out hippie. And- but that too is idealized. One of the reviews I read was comparing this to The Deuce. I don't know if that's a, a series that either of you have seen, you know, which is very clearly about late 60s, early 70s Times Square. That takes it right into the grunge. This is a cleaned up version of the pimps and hoes. Right. I mean, everything is incredibly stylized, obviously. The, the more we get into, we'll talk about She's So Heavy in a moment. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think that you can only get so much into a film like this. And I think what they were doing was going over the top with the symbolism and, you know, maybe a little bit light on the narrative. I think if there is any criticism I would have of the movie, it's that there might not be as good of a balance towards the middle of of the film between these two things. But here, what they're really, I think, doing is just laying on as heavy as they can on the things that Julie Taymor does in her productions, really. These, you know, over-the-top spectacles, puppetry, mimes, dancing, all of that. And I think that at the beginning of this project, somebody obviously said, we're going to do a movie based on a bunch of Beatles songs. How do you do that and make it the dialogue and make it move the story along? So they're using all sorts of things, stylized art and different musical arrangements, just to make this work as far as to have some strong narrative i don't see how you could do it we move on to the section of the film that i think actually probably works the best we see sadie sort of downstairs in a club she's probably making a little bit of money but not a whole lot and she's doing uh why don't we do it in the road and a good version too my one complaint about both Sadie and Jojo as characters is they are too obviously Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix in characterization. It's like, okay, but. Oh, I don't know if they're any more or less those characters than Jude himself is John and or Paul to me. I mean, I think they were trying to really, again, lean into these big, broadly drawn archetypes of people in the 60s. And if you're going to have all this music, you probably need to have at least a couple of musicians to make it feel like we're in a world where this much music makes sense. And so we learned that Lucy is not going to Europe with her parents and, and that <laughs> she's going to uh, live in New York just for the summer. She, she, she reassures her parents that that's just for the summer and that she's going to go to school right after when the next semester starts up. They cram a bunch of narrative in here real quick prudence re-enters the scene she came in through the bathroom window (laughs) i like that just like i liked when jude was getting his pay pack earlier on and the guy was saying you know i thought when i was six you know when i'm 64 i wouldn't be here anymore and look at me (laughs) now (laughs) right where'd she come from nowhere okay (laughs) We, we we get where you're going with this Katz's deli sequence lucy delivers max's draft letter Right. She burns it. Although I, yeah. I do like JoJo's response to that. You can burn the letter all you want. You're still going to have to report. 
I have been part of some of those conversations in my life. People who weren't going to go, who burned draft papers, who, you know, scrambling for a way not to have to go. So I, I, I certainly identified with that scene. Uh, that scene, I, I found that scene to be just so sad. I mean, the idea of what what so many men went through at that time to potentially just die for a cause they didn't believe in to have to totally change their life. I mean, the poor sister who just lost her boyfriend. It was just, I don't know, it just made my heart hurt. And that leads into what I find the most effective sequence in the whole film when, you know, we've kind of had some hints that Jude is an artist. He draws this uh, portrait of Lucy just on the wall with a burnt stick, and it's just so beautiful. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, they're certainly making... Jude, you know, he's certainly the hero of the story and he's an artist and he's sensitive. And I think they made that love relationship come up, at least for the context of the movie in a believable way. Which then leads into If I Fell, Evan Rachel Wood, great performance. It's really slow and it's really sad, despite the fact that they're falling in love. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really, I mean, this is a very complex song, I've always thought. It isn't really a love song. It's really a song about being unsure and being insecure and having been hurt. and Vulnerable. This portrayal of the song really got to the heart of, I think, what John was writing about. It was gorgeous. And then for me, the whole thing just crashes to a halt with, I want you, she's so heavy. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to go first? (laughs) Sure, I'll go first. Yeah. This is the part of the film that definitely gets into, we we lose a bit of the narrative plot. We start giving ourselves over to the symbolism, to, to the Julie Taymor of it all. And I find the scene absolutely terrifying. The animated Uncle Sam posters, the soldiers with the G.I. Joe faces, you know, the Vietnam, the, you know, half-naked men being prepared for for war. It's so visceral. It's so intense. It was very uncomfortable to me. And for that reason, I think it was a very effective way of kind of turning the movie toward this direction (laughs) now that we're really going to start going in all the way. Right. (laughs) What what were your thoughts about it? Well, you know, I liked it anyway. I I like that stylized way that she handled everything. And then my mind really was affected when my son saw it, when he was probably seven or eight and he was blown away. And and there was one of those scenes where he goes, play that again, play that again, play that again. Really? Oh yes. I mean, he was fascinated by that and it made a, an impact on him and he got the soldiers carrying Statue of Liberty. I mean, he he got that at that age, and so I thought that's pretty effective. You know, the fact that that he yeah seriously you know. okay. The Uncle Sam bit worked. The poster coming to life. The sergeants in the masks. I found second rate Lion King. You know, <laughs> she'd done that much better, and I couldn't help but just sort of shake my head at the. She's so heavy going to the Statue of Liberty. Okay, you know, horses for courses. I think maybe you need to either be predisposed to enjoying this kind of film or just give yourself up to the fact that, you know, this is what you're you're seeing. I think it's very hard to 
look at it in any other way because it's so complicated and confusing and over the top and unrealistic yet very realistic at the same time in some ways. It's a very strange amalgam of lots of things in a very short amount of time. It was an effective way to show the meat market kind of thing, you know, men going into the army and being put off that conveyor belt. And then all of a sudden you're somewhere else and there's nothing about patriotism or why you might be fighting the war it's just these soldiers with the statue of liberty on their shoulders obviously struggling under the weight of it symbolic yes yeah then that leads into a sequence where prudence locks herself in a closet for no apparent reason wait a second yeah i think we should talk about the whole fashion of the times, the Hendrix clothes, and the fact that they're still singing I Want You. So they have now turned that song back to the seductive version. And this is another scene with Prudence. She's outside the window. She's watching JoJo and Sadie dance. And she's moaning. She's so longing for this relationship that she can't have she's despondent which is why she's going to go lock herself in the closet she's in love with sadie and she knows she can't have it she knows that that's not sadie's interest and we're talking about the 60s where being gay was still a felony at this point right so she's just devastated about it and i think that this is the moment where for her it's all all kind of crashing down For her, the realization of who she is and the fact that she can't be who she is in this culture. Right. And locks herself in the closet. Wow. Symbolism. Yeah. Um, Yep. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) And a chance to bring in another Beatles reference. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's the joke when Max goes, I think she's hung up on me. (laughs) He's completely blind. And then Prudence rolls her eyes. It's so funny. In the middle of her total despair, she's like, oh, my God, this man. (laughs) Right. It's not a bad version of Dear Prudence. There's a sequence in the clouds, which I think they sort of stole from John Lennon's Imagine. Could very well be. Wouldn't be surprised. I think they took every reference they could possibly get for us to enjoy. (laughs) So there's another one. Right. Then the characters kind of go their own separate ways. We see Lucy going off into a peace march, the beginnings of her radicalization, I guess. They're all at the peace march. Then we see Sadie playing in this club, and she's approached by a slimy, or I guess he's supposed to be slimy. We don't see enough of him to know a record exec. You know, he's just there. Yeah, I think we're just kind of filling out who and what these more ensemble characters are, and building up for, you know, the rooftop concert, really. Her life as a musician is kind of something we have to track a little bit in order right. for that to make sense at the end. I also wanted to point out that th- this piece, March, will be different than the rest of them because this one is much lighter, more fun. Dear Prudence being kind of the idealism of the times. Greet the brand new day. It's it's just before the drug slash movement chaos that's coming. I mean, it's, it's almost a mirror of Lenin's actual indoctrination into politics. You know, it was, it was Yoko and it was give peace a chance. And then all of a sudden it was New York City and, and the Black Panthers and hanging out with the radicals. Yeah. And that's the story arc. That's what's coming as we discuss this. But, you know, it starts off one way and then it becomes more and more radical. The pushing back and the things that happen and people get more and more radical. I also read the, the speech that the uh, activist gives 
is actually a speech given from that day. Your point about the record executive, I thought that that's kind of a symbol of bringing business to art. Up to now, it's been playing in the clubs and, oh my gosh, it's so cool. And now comes the business. Right. But yeah. Sadie doesn't doesn't get to be where she is without this guy. I mean, it's it's kind of like, like what we were talking about last week. You know, the, the Beatles don't work in 63 if the BBC doesn't get behind them. For sure. You need the institutions to make yourself a success. I mean, that's kind of the way it at least then worked. Then we go to what is effectively Max's going away party. He's been drafted. He is going to be going away. So they basically decide to go off on one last bender. They run into Dr. Robert, played by Bono. (laughs) But they're there for a reason, aren't they? This is related to Sadie and the slimy record exec. Right. That's why they're there. I don't know if they really planned on anything. Well, they they were clearly planning on some sort of blowout before he had to go away. Well, maybe they weren't counting on the acid in the punch. No one ever is. Right. <laughs> the thing you, the evening you thought you were going to have, it doesn't turn out the way you, you expected <laughs> once that variable is added in. You're either on the bus or off the bus. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought they hewed a little bit too closely to the Ken Kesey, Mary Pranksters line, but... That's who he's supposed to be, just as, you know, Sadie is Janice and JoJo is Jimmy. Well... Dr. Robert is Ken Kesey, and uh, Eddie Izzard is going to be um, Timothy Leary. I can buy that. There's one line that I really like, given that they're playing with time so much. Bono telling them that, oh, well, that's two years ahead of you. Right, right. (laughs) Right, yeah. But I also think it was cool, using the music to, to move the story along, is that the philosophy that Dr. Robert is espousing that later Lucy will pair it back kind of is he opens up with, I am, he is, you are, he is, you are me. And we are all together. That's the philosophy. And the fact that it is in that song is just like, wow, that is so cool. (laughs) The rest of the song goes off into acid. I thought they did a really nice job here. This whole section again is very intense, but it, really goes through what I think many of the stages of the people who actually experienced this era might have gone through. They had the war and the people in their lives dying and then the protest march and then they got exposed to the psychedelics and then they come back and they move on with the storyline. But they had to experience all of that in order to get to where the movie itself climaxes. Right. And it was interesting how quickly and how intensely they made that happen. It was very compact. Yes. Well, compact enough that it's seven years of real time compressed into maybe 18 months. Right, exactly. Of movie time. So. <laughs> yeah, but in the end, that's completely unimportant because it's not really a history. There was a Star Trek podcast I was listening to, which kind of applies here. Reality is not canon. <laughs> yeah, I like that. <laughs> Steal that for this. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but on that note, one of the guys on the bus looked incredibly like Rob Schneider in a bad mustache, but it's not him. It's like, (laughs) I just kept looking at him like, is that Rob Schneider or isn't that Rob Schneider? Oh my God, you were on acid. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Okay. uh, I did think that the visuals of the acid were pretty good. The film effects and the coloring, that was pretty good. And Yeah, I think Julie Taymor's world kind of looks slightly on acid no matter what. So she really got <laughs> to indulge her you know, biggest fantasies of what stuff's supposed to look like in these scenes. I loved it. 
Yeah. I also kind of didn't get the relationship between Dr. Robert and the Eddie Izzard character. Bono is Ken Kesey. And there was a philosophy about acid taking on the West Coast. The California trip is like pulsing colors and feelings. Whereas the East Coast with Timothy Leary, he was a professor and it was much more a study that was more about hallucination. There's a great book called Storming Heaven, which is kind of about the history of it all. But there were other things. For instance, there were two different acid sources. In California, Owsley produced a lot of acid, which a lot of people took. And on the East Coast, it tended to be government-made Oh, that's so interesting. The Kool-Aid acid tests were in the West and the more academic approach in the East. And so that's what the two characters, when he says, you know, I don't have time He's busy. And Dr. Robert is like, what? And just kind of gets and drives off. They never really in real life agreed <laughs> about uh, the whole thing. As off the wall as a lot of the things in this movie are, if things like that are happening throughout the movie, that, that means that they're really, there's nothing that wasn't very specific in what they chose to do. Even though it feels like some kind of acid fever dream half the time, it's based in something that was real. That's the way I felt about it. I know probably my experience of the time clued me into certain things that younger people wouldn't know necessarily. So it made me realize that the film was a lot deeper than I first thought. I love this. I'm getting a totally different appreciation for it. They get off the bus. There's the argument between Bono and the Eddie Izzard character, Mr. Kite. And then they go into a bit of a magical mystery tour ripoff. Yep. You, know, <laughs> you have fake blue meanies behind him. And then, you know, you've got lots of people going into a very little tent. And then, you know, there's this expansive weirdness going on inside the tent. Yeah, we get our acid trip. We get our puppetry. We get our carnival-esque feeling that, again, reminded me of of Moulin Rouge in that way. And sometimes I think, was Lucy a hallucination? (laughs) Oh, no. That's another level of something that I don't know if I want to think about in this movie. But I'm certainly not going to say no. I, I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> Prudence re-enters the film, but just for a minute. She's uh, fallen in love with someone on this uh, circus tour, a girl named Rita, who's a contortionist. Now, this was when the lesbian thing, oh, okay. Oh, no. Right. Gotcha. <laughs> well, I'm glad you find, you got it. I'm glad right, that right. It, it came through in the story. <laughs> it hit you. Did it all of a sudden change your mind about what had gone on earlier? I still didn't get the I want to hold your hand bit, but it, it did make the Dear Prudence section make a little bit more sense. Right. Then we have a nice sort of fantasy sequence where they're singing because, and I like that a lot. It's a real nice scene. I saw that as the idyllic post-acid feeling after an intense trip. So that's coming down and then Vietnam. Yeah, I thought the beginning of because was also a really nice callback to both John and Yoko in the way that they were doing the nudity and the way they were kind of intertwined with one another. And also just in Paul and Linda in the way that the two of them look together. And so it was kind of fun to think about this later stage of the Beatles life and the relationships that they formed and this later Beatles song and then a little bit more advancement in the plot and the relationship too. So we're clearly entering in toward the end of the film here, Max goes off to Vietnam. It's winter. A little bit too heavy on the symbolism there. Gee, it's snowing. And 
things are freezing around us. Uh, what is that supposed to mean? I get it. We find out that Lucy is now working as a waitress, and she is writing for an underground newspaper. They've settled into a more realistic life. They're doing the things they need to do to survive. They're doing their jobs. But we're also seeing that Lucy is slowly getting more and more invested in the anti-war movement. Which then leads us into something which sort of serves as at least a temporary farewell to the love story. We see them sleeping together, and he's clearly pleading to her about what's going on with her and perhaps with the world. He's getting more and more invested in his own art, where he probably really has no concept of what it is that's happening for her when she's not home. I think that's exactly it. He, being an illegal illegal alien, is not going to have to face the draft. That part of life is not going to affect him. And I think that plays a role in her feelings. He's making art, but is that changing the world? Right. And the anti-war effort can only be conceptual to him because he doesn't have the personal investment that she and her family do. Then we move on. We, we see that Sadie is advancing in her career. She clearly has some sort of a record deal. And Jojo apparently just doesn't like it. I guess he thinks that she's selling out. Correct me if I'm wrong. They never really spelled out what the argument was about, but I think you're probably very right. And that's, that's where he was feeling. This is one of the covers I didn't care for. Going off between the singing and the Hendrix-ish guitar playing, it didn't work for me. And the emotions don't really work for me. And it doesn't advance the story. It's their fight moment. Why is this happening? How did we get here? It's always been my impression that, like most record company guys, he's mm. after her. He doesn't care about the band. She's the face. And so that's who he's pushing. And that's what JoJo's upset about because she's kind of ready to go yeah i'll have to disagree about the arrangement too though i think that first off the woman who plays sadie i mean that rendition of O'Darlin is her singing is outstanding the arrangement was there i think to communicate the fight more than the beauty of the song so him interrupting with some very aggressive guitar is you know very much spelling out how he's feeling. So I think yeah. for, as far as a narrative device, it works very well. But um, it, you know, guitar nice. aside, her voice is just out of this world. There it is. Julie had referenced that she and the person who arranged the music had heard a Beatles tape where they do a call and response just like that, where Paul sings something and John answers back with a comment. And that's where they took that from. Oh, from Oh Darling itself? From an I outtake. I know which one that is. Yeah. I yeah. mean, kind of, sort of. Well, well, darling, darling, please believe me. Please believe me. I'll never, I'll never do you. I'll never do you no harm, darling. Believe me when I tell you. do you no harm if you turn cockeyed and look at it as julie tamor might have looked at it okay i can see how she got from here to there that also serves as the if not break up, certainly increase in tensions between Jude and Lucy. We see Jude drawing a green Granny Smith apple, another Easter egg. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. He's supposed to be drawing trademark emblem for uh, the record company. It's not quite clear that this scene and that scene are part of the same thing. It might be, but I'm not sure. Right. He's doing those kinds of drawings at this point because it's not very far along before he in the strawberry fields and, and he's talking about Sadie's label, you know, red, juicy and sexy. Which is very cute that her label is probably strawberries playing off the apple. Yeah, but I'd rather have a banana, so. <laughs> All right. Uh, okay. <laughs> a little Ruddles reference there. <laughs> her friend at the uh, underground newspaper brings in a TV and that only annoys Jude some more. And again, with the tension, you know, he wants to be home. He wants to do his art. He wants to be go internal. And she wants there to be more of an acknowledgement of what's really happening out there in their home. Yeah. Bring it right here. <laughs> then into Strawberry Fields Forever, not really a too psychedelic version of it it's very intense both jude and max sing it the lyric has a perspective for the particular singer again i get what she's doing but him pinning the strawberries and having them bleeding that's not real i mean maybe it should have been paint maybe it should have been something else i didn't care for it the american flag made out of strawberries where the strawberries just start not just dripping but literally bleeding blood down the can. <laughs> right. I think that fits in very well with some of the aesthetics we've seen already. It's just very poignant and loud expression of what she wanted to say. What he was doing there reminded me very much of Ralph Steadman and his art for Rolling Stone. It, it really had that look to it. Although I did like the final strawberry that they came up with, which they used in much of the artwork for the film. That was really good. The flag stuff, not so much. Yeah, but I agree. That's perfectly in keeping with what was going on at the time. Jude has had enough, so he goes down to the underground newspaper and proceeds to sing revolution and disrupt the newspaper office. I really like this one. You know, it, it's, live. it's live. It's live. It's a good performance. The scene, again, yeah. it just sort of whoosh. I, all right. You're telling me this? I'll believe you. It's a classic musical theater fight scene. It's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a, a really good use of Lennon's stance of pushing back on extreme radicalism at that time. You know? Yeah. When he walks into these offices, you say you want a revolution, and he talks to him. So, again, this song becomes the dialogue of what needs to be said. And I think at the end of the song, when he kind of loses it in a very Lennon-like way, screaming, all right, all right, you know, over and over, trying to push back, I found it really effective. It was, and I think that there is a lot of debate over exactly what Lennon meant and between the alternate versions and what his stance really was. And I think that they used the narrative to really illustrate, like you said, what Lennon's stance actually probably was and show it in a way that made perfect sense. Can you at least admit that the portrait of Mao on the wall was a little bit too on the nose? Well, if it was 1968. That was a popular poster in some quarters, and it's in the lyric of the song. <laughs> well, that's why it was there. So, In a dialogue, as he's standing in the offices and he sees that portrait, it's part of what he has to say. You must had to have it because somebody like Jude, I don't think he would make that connection without seeing the visual first. This then leads to them walking home, and we learn of the... The uh, MLK assassination. Again, is it 1968? Is it 1966? Who knows? 
I don't know. As the doctor says, this is all wibbly wobbly timey wimey. <laughs> exactly. And we, we now have a doctor who can play Billy Preston in our Doctor Who Beatles oh. film, by the way. Oh my God. It turns out that various doctors have played various members of the Beatles at various times. Oh, yes, definitely. Yes. <laughs> I know this. And, and so we were saying that that now must become a prerequisite. I love it. <laughs> and so what what are we going to do with the uh, Whitaker? Well, okay, Whitaker can become Cynthia. And so our, our new friend <laughs> Kitty, right? can be our Billy Preston. And he's younger than the rest as well. I love it. Sidetracked, shouldn't be. Sorry. <laughs> I'm the one who took us there. So the, the use of While My Guitar Gently Weeps, I like that. JoJo playing that in the aftermath of the MLK shooting. The end when they're both walking home drunk. I felt really Yeah, real. I mean, both are in pain because within the story, you know, love lost. But then they use Harrison's fade out, you know, when he goes, oh, 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 you know. Mm-hmm. And, and so they do that, the two characters. And it just, it was a nice use of the record's affectations to make a dramatic point. Another point about just how specific they were with every point in this film. The set dressing has also changed. The little bodega downstairs is now called the Psychedelica Test. That's real fun. Real place. Oh, was it? I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. They arrive home and we learn that Lucy has left. She ghosts Jude. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Not even a fare thee well. They just had so much misunderstandings about the war effort and the anti-war effort that they broke. We get a bunch of snippets of several songs. We get some of Across the Universe. We see uh, Jude on the subway. I like that he passes himself in one of the other cars. <laughs> yeah, right. As the yeah. Harry Christians pass. Which then leads into a little bit more of Helter Skelter. We see a protest at Columbia. This is more Lucy's thing. Well, you know, the song continues. It fades back and forth between the two. Well, they're going at the same time. One's up louder than another at times, but it's funny that he keeps singing, nothing's going to change my world, while it absolutely changes right in front of him. That's kind of the argument between him and Lucy. Nothing's going to change his world. And then you see the cops sing, nothing's going to change my world. And then the faculty comes out, and they're singing it too, while Sadie is screaming helter-skelter. I thought that was very effective. Yeah. So despite the fact that he's not really part of the protest, Jude gets arrested, thrown in jail. Lucy doesn't come to bail him out. (laughs) Although, I guess it's implied that Lucy is the one who actually called his father. I'm not sure. I can't remember how they said his father got there. His father has a line along the lines of, some girl called me. Ah. Yeah, we don't know Lucy's story. She was being taken out. She may have been being arrested as well. We don't know what happens to her. We just know what happens to Jude. So his father tries to convince the government that this actually is his son, but doesn't happen. And Jude gets deported. Right. He goes home. He's back on the docks. He's not real happy. I liked that they took this turn. You know, they kind of answered the question of, this guy's been in the country for a long time. Like, really, what's going to happen here? They did send him home, and we got to see Liverpool again. And I think it did a lot for pushing the story to an actual nice resolution. And I don't know if it could have happened without him returning home for a bit. But they also don't really tell you how he manages to get back to the U.S. I'm going to do this, and I guess you can read between the lines. Oh, okay, his mother found the birth certificate. They were somehow being able to prove that he actually was this guy's son, yada, yada, yada. But I think him coming through Ellis Island, implying that however he did it this time, he was able to do it legally. George got 
sent out of Germany and was able to come back. <laughs> oh, all right. I like what was clearly in effect. It's the Stanley docks. We see the big iron gates and it's, mm-hmm. oh, right. okay. We'll go with that. <laughs> that was a nice little scene. What's the name? Yeah. Then we see Max, who is not real clear to me, but I guess he got shot in Vietnam. He's in the hospital at home. It could be a mental thing. He could just be broke. That was a horrifying scene. Very nightmarish. Very scary. Selma Hayek, as a sexy slash nightmarish nurse. Right. That was great. That whole scene, the dance part with the priest. and It was Hollywood, but really good. The, the only thing I liked was the Bond girl in the syringe. but That was it? Because I thought, you know, when... He leads up to you, happiness is a warm, yes it is. And then you wait. He looks down and then hits that high note, you know, on gun, floating up into the air and falling back to his bed. I kind of wanted more Max and Lucy, to be honest with you. (laughs) I could have done with a dialogue scene here. (laughs) If not removing the music, cut down the music scene and, and give them a dialogue scene here. You know, let them talk. Yeah, I think what they wanted to do was communicate just the pure horror of what was happening. Yeah. And they did that well. It was terrifying. I find the scene that they go to a little bit better. We get sort of reenactment of the Weatherman incident. Now, are the guys building the bomb supposed to be the same guys who are in the newspaper or not? I yeah. think so. Her friend was one of them. She gets a good line. But we're not the ones who are supposed to be building bombs. But having that come after Max in the hospital, that's effective. Oh, for sure. The war is just destroying so many different people in so many different ways. And they really packed it into a small amount of time to show all of those things. Her being in the phone booth, that was the only reprise in the whole movie, I think, is when she starts singing, it's going to be all right over and over trying to reassure Mm -hmm. herself because there are dogs and mayhem right outside. She returns to the scene of the drawing. The drawing is still there. Having the piece of charred wood wash ashore, again, a little too Hollywood for me. (laughs) The version of Blackbird is nice. We see Max sitting in a bar, shell-shocked at where he is. He's clearly gotten out of the hospital. But he's certainly not the same. Yeah, broken. Then, Hey Jude, uh, well, again, as with Dear Prudence, you name the character Jude so you can perform Hey Jude. (laughs) (laughs) You know, they never sing Maxwell's Silver Hammer. (laughs) They reference it, they never sing it. (laughs) So, that didn't necessarily have to be the reason they... (laughs) All right, but the sequence didn't move me. I liked it. I thought it was a real nice turning point for the the movie. It's really cool when his mother sings that, let it out and let it in, using that recording to to add things. The fact that the use of voicings, you know, Max and mother and the kids, the drunk who does the trash cans, that actually was the guy who created Stomp. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah, that was good. Very creative. And so when Jude walks into to New York, basically, that's Max ready to do Paul's Judah, 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 Judah. Yes. Like, you know, perfect use of that. That was so good. I mean, that was so good. And for me, I think it kind of breathed new life into the song, Hey Jude. I just heard it so many times. <laughs> sung it, you know, with Paul right. so many times and the stage of the Beatle Fest so many times. Just to see 
actually that building of optimism in a, in a narrative way was very exciting to me. All right. You can have it. I'm sorry. We just yeah. like me. I'm sorry. I will. I, I, nothing to apologize for. It's, you like it. I didn't care no, for it. I knew, <laughs> I knew how this was going to go down when we started. <laughs> so I guess what they're telling us is that Max is a cab driver. Yes. Uh, and so he's, he's picking up Jude. Jude is now apparently legally in the country. They get Cousin Brucey. That was nice. On the radio. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And then, well, another Easter egg too far. They drive down to what is, I guess, the offices of Sadie's record label, a building which looks suspiciously like Three Savile Row. Uh, right down to the gold plaque on the outside emblazoned with Jude's artwork. You know, he had to have gotten paid for the artwork. How did that work when he was in illegal? Was it all cash? First of all, the record company guy was slimy. We already established that. We already decided that, okay. He probably did not get paid what he was worth. He got paid to the table. Yeah. I will say, though, I unabashedly loved the replication of the rooftop concert and of the building and of all of those things. <laughs> I loved it, especially after spending so much time with the Get Back movie the past couple of months. It was yeah. fun to see it in this way. Yeah. It's a little bit more like the airplane rooftop show, which preceded the Beatles version. <laughs> if you've seen that footage, I mean, that was actually in New York and, and the rooftop actually looks a little bit more like that than the Apple one, but the building looks like three Savile Row or the doors look like three Savile Row. We see uh, Sadie and Jojo on the roof and, and they're playing, don't let me down. And okay, it's on the roof. And you know, you got people like the real rooftop concert and, Jude makes his way up with Max, and they're all going, well, where's Lucy? And Prudence is there. Why? How did she get there? She's their friend. Is she part of the record company, or or what's going on there? Uh, I know. I'm overthinking it way, way, way too much. Anyway, they're looking around. The performance continues. Then the cops come up and stop it after the one song. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Tepidly. (laughs) The actual cops did a much better job of both clearing the building and clearing the streets of New York than these cops did. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And move on and you'll find out they didn't stop the concert at all. Maybe pseudo Mal Evans was there. (laughs) It was Sadie and Prudence who got them to stop singing you know the love 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 and they sang it three times which is magical and would make the cops go okay (laughs) yeah these cops certainly didn't care too much about upholding that law no lucy has managed to climb up to the roofs of one of the other buildings i wonder whether she had somebody going off into sadie's record office saying there's some girl on my roof (laughs) right well, apparently they filmed several endings, one of which they don't meet up at all. They don't, oh, really? Know, yeah. Lucy is working at like an outdoor cafe, and, and Jude walks past, and they never see each other. 
Hmm. Oh, that would have been so unsatisfying. I'm glad they went the way they did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think so. Yeah. Right. And they had another one where they had a band crossing the street crosswalk, but you see it from up above, apparently. And then one more thing I have to call out here, too, is that all you need is love. It has got to be the final but most direct callback to the movie Moulin Rouge. Because there is a scene there where the young male ingenue lead, Ewan McGregor in that, sings All You Need Is Love, sings it a cappella, and then it goes into the inst- an instrumental version. So wow. it was like an, a, a direct copy of that. It was wow. funny. Wow. And, and when did Moulin Rouge come out? 2001. And it was kind of the first of these big... I think the term is actually recycled musical, where you take popular songs and reconfigure them into a storyline right. narrative. Uh, Singing in the Rain was actually the first version of this. Most of those songs were popular songs before that movie came out, but there was kind of a, you know, an upswell in those in the early 2000s. So, you know, I want to go through a couple of things that we didn't go over at the top of the film. As you can tell by our opinions, this is a pretty divisive film among Beatle people. I actually like it more than a lot of people I've spoken to about this movie. What our friends over on uh, a certain other podcast would call Jean Jacket Guy, he hates this movie. <laughs> I know who you're talking about. <laughs> I mean, I can, I can see how in the way that lots of musical theater, and I've been involved in musical theater since I was like 10 years old, and people hate musical theater. People who hate it, they hate it. And so I can see how somebody taking something as sacred as the Beatles and making it into a wild musical theater experience would not be everybody's cup of tea. And I respect that. I totally do. And it failed at the box office, despite the fact that it has legs. And it does have legs because, well, it managed to get itself a short run back in theaters in 2018. And there's ongoing talk of Tamor actually bringing this thing back as an actual Broadway musical. Which I will say, I hope they do not do that. I hope what they do is make a part two, which she's also been talking about wanting to do. Part two? Yeah. A part two set in the 70s. Both of the two lead actors are interested in doing it. So it's kind of something in the works, but, you know, in the very, very early stages. But I will say that I hope it does not become a musical because of the example, again, of Moulin Rouge, which is right now a very successful Broadway musical, but it doesn't capture the all-encompassing weirdness and larger-than-life feeling that the original film did. And I think that, I I mean, I, I think that this would have the same failures. And the critics were also pretty much divided, although they tend to be more about where I am. Uh, It's got a Rotten Tomatoes score of 53%. The audience score on Rotten Tomatoes is, interestingly enough, 84%. It's pretty high. Yeah, I can see that because probably the people who saw it were inclined to like it. You may not go to this kind of film unless you already know that you're probably going to like it. Well, I went in thinking I was going to like it. Well, you as part of the Beatles community, though, that's another reason why you would go. But I don't know if the average moviegoer would see this and be like, oh, yes, let's do it. So maybe the reviews for the audience are already kind of weighted in a different way. Two quotes from two separate reviews. On the negative side, across the universe is at times like hair as if it were directed by Oliver Stone. The historical forces swirling around them leave the cast with nothing more to play than archetypical symbols of an ultimately dashed idealism, which (laughs) I have to agree with. Mm. 
<laughs> that's the whole thing about yeah it's Janis Joplin it's Jimi Hendrix and it's John and Paul together I've also heard that Max was supposed to be at least in part based on Kurt Cobain in appearance he certainly is oh I can see that that's interesting the other review from Roger Ebert who was quite possibly my favorite film reviewer of all time and I find myself agreeing with him most of the time but not here it's the kind of movie you watch again and again like listening to a favorite album Okay. Yeah, I agree with that. I do too. When I told Isaac that we were going to be doing this, he goes, I'll watch it with you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, he's your son. <laughs> well, you know, but I guarantee you, you can't get him to like something he doesn't like. Oh, that's, that's really sweet. The other thing about this movie, well, first off, Julie Tamor, as we mentioned, she did The Lion King, the Broadway version of Lion King. She did the movie Frida, which I like a whole lot. Oh, brilliant movie. And she was also behind the Spider-Man Broadway production. Epic disaster. Which, incidentally enough, she had originally cast her two leads in that. Oh, I'm glad they didn't do it because they might be dead today. Evan Rachel Wood was Mary Jane and James Sturgis was Peter Parker. That was just too much. Everything about that Spider-Man, I mean, it's it's really, really unfortunate that that is how that thing happened. And then there's Bono also. Yeah. yeah. One oh. other movie that if you do like Julie Tamer, I would highly recommend is her version of Titus with Anthony Hopkins. The Shakespeare, Titus Andronicus. It's one of the most fascinating and disgusting and gory movies I've ever seen in my life. And it's got all of the uh, Tamar highlights in it. It's great. (laughs) Uh, And then to close out this set of comments, Joe Roth re-edited Across the Universe. First off, it took them forever to film this movie. Nine months to film it. And a full year to edit it. Wow. The original release date was supposed to be a year before it actually came out. Yeah. yeah, I can imagine that this was very, very complex when it came to editing. And then we get, get into that whole thing of business puts you on a timetable, but is that what art is about? Slimy record executive. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe she was predicting what Joe Roth would at least attempt to do to her right, movie. Right. But you can't blame Joe Roth. Joe Roth, his statement was, I'm not going to let another Geely happen under my watch. Geely, most notably the single largest commercial and artistic flop, quite possibly ever. Well, you know, as a film executive, it's brilliant that you would put out that you were going to do something so that this movie wouldn't be the biggest flop ever. Well, what had happened was he took Tamor's cut. He edited about 40 minutes out of it. I mean, it's a long movie as it stands. It's over two hours and 10 minutes. And so he cut it down to a, to a nice tight 90 minutes. And he did a preview screening of it. He didn't say he was going to release it. He did a preview screening of it to see if the folks in the audience got it any better. Yeah. We don't know what the response to that was, but... But the two-hour version came out. Yeah, exactly. Tamor made some threats. She said, if you make one single cut that I didn't approve, my name is being taken off of this movie. Well, I'm glad she held her own. Yeah, absolutely. I have no problem with that. I mean, it should be her artistic vision, but I don't think that Joe Roth had any right to do anything to the movie, frankly. The only right he had was, okay, we just won't release it, but they'd already spent the money. Right. They went to Liverpool. <laughs> they went yeah. to New York City. They built all the sets. They filmed all the 
scenes. It's like, it's done. He tried to make a power play. It didn't work out for him. And <laughs> they went with their original plan, sounds like. And we have a better movie for it. I wouldn't mind seeing the 90-minute cut sometime. Well, <laughs> right. I'm a little bit sad that they didn't find a way to just squeeze it in, even in standard definition, on the DVD. Well, you're from the, the uh, less is more school, I guess. But why does this strike me as being like the scene in Amadeus where the guy goes, it just needs less notes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love it. Yeah. (laughs) Well, speaking of time, this is going to be a long show. So, Erica, thank you. You told us that BC the Beatles is coming back. It's, It's making its grand return. The last episode was in December. Yes, we took a six months hiatus for a whole bunch of reasons, COVID and otherwise, and now we're coming back and we are focusing on the Beatles and touring, you know, inspired, of course, by Paul's summer tour. All right. Anything else or do you want to have a last attempt to try and convince me that I'm wrong? Last thing I'll say is whether you like it or not, I think movies like this, projects like this are wonderful for the Beatles fandom and the Beatles community. It's a way to force us to look at these songs that we cherish so much in a totally different way. And some of these projects are better than others. We all have the ones that we love or don't, but I think that there's nothing more important to keeping this fandom and this community growing and changing and evolving than welcoming projects like this as they come along. Oh, I'm certainly glad it exists. And, uh, you know, I will agree with you because. I've heard from more than a couple of examples, and and John talking about his son, it's the same thing. This was the introduction, sort of, if you were too young for anthology, this was a lot of people's introduction to the Beatles. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll be back next week with a new show. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. You were at the screening with Paul McCartney, who I always thought I was supposed to marry. Yes, yes. <laughs> I'm really surprised that I haven't married Paul. But anyway, you were at a screening with Paul McCartney. Yes. You sat next to I him. I did, by ourselves, with one other person in the room. Oh, my goodness. It was the most terrifying moment. Can you imagine? And, you know, I just felt that, ultimately, that was it. I got to do the movie and sit with him and have him were you, see it. Were you, how nervous were you? Beyond. Beyond. Beyond beyond and he sat next to me and when all my loving yeah started he sang under his breath that was it i know <laughs> he sang under his breath under his really? breath and at the end i I, wow. did, I did the classic thing i said was there anything you didn't like instead of yes you know what did and you he love? said what's not to like and it was just that was that was just those words wow and that Ringo has seen it, and Yoko, and Olivia Harrison, they've all seen it, and uh, it's, they, they like it. Free. 
I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again.